Section 43 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Chapter 13, The Netherlands, by A. W. Ward, Part 2. The overthrow of the greatness of the Flemish communes was due in part to the anarchical spirit which more and more took possession of them as their public life passed into the oclocratic stage and which could not but impair their military discipline and defensive strength. What had here, and the state of things was not very different in Brabant, remained of the authority of the territorial prince was confined to the influence exercised by his bailey upon the administration of justice and, when possible, upon the choice of magistrates and upon legislation. The patriciate, the porters at Bruges and Ghent, to which the Linages corresponded in Brabant, still ordinarily determined the choice of the magistrates or aldermen, but in any season of agitation this power was sure to be swept out of their hands with all the judicial, financial and other functions of government. Not unfrequently such outbursts of popular fury were provoked by the venality of the ruling classes, and the fear of their recurrence naturally inclined the patricians towards the ducal authority, unless when their advances were blindly repelled by the harshness of the sovereign, as in the later days of Charles the Bold. The real holders of power in the Flemish communes were now the working population at large, divided on a system varying in the several towns into trades or handicrafts, ambachten. In Brabant, these trades had before the accession of Philip effected a compromise with the Linages. In Holland and Utrecht, their authority was great, but not overwhelming. In Liège, as has been seen, it was paramount. In the three great Flemish towns, the great mass of the trades ordinarily asserted their power by the votes of their representatives, and on critical occasions by the organised resort to arms under their banners in the marketplace, Wapinge. By itself, each trade formed not only a military, but also a social and religious unit, with its common purse for purposes of business, pleasure and charity, and often with a chapel and a hospital of its own. In the course of the 14th century, the great craft of the weavers had effected its predominance in each of the three cities and became omnipotent at Ghent. Next to them came the fullers, with whom they had many a sanguinary conflict. At Ghent there were, besides these two great crafts, 52 smaller crafts, and in one of them even the porters, who constituted a guild without political power, had to inscribe themselves if desirous of becoming eligible for a magisterial office. At Bruges there were four great crafts, weavers, fullers, shearers and dyers, and the famous muster of October the 10th, 1436, included 48 smaller, from the butchers and bakers to the paternoster makers. All of these were combined into eight members, with a ninth consisting of the four free trades of merchants, while the Ghent trades made up three members only. Each member, elsewhere called nation, 
was presided over by a grand dean, and these officers were always, however its composition might from time to time vary, included in the representative committee, called Collati at Ghent, of the entire commune. The approval of this committee was doubtless asked by the commune, when in moments of supreme excitement, Hufmanen, or captains, were chosen by or for it, a term which seems in the first instance to have meant merely the heads of a porter's guild. The absence of any durable league or alliance between the several communes was due to the narrow jealousy which they cherished towards one another and which has already been illustrated in the case of the relations between Bruges and Ghent. In 1423, Ghent successfully thwarted the attempt of Ypres to divert to herself the water transport of wine and cereals. Half a century later, the Ypres joined the Genters in ignoring the apprehensions of Bruges as to the sanding up of the Zwin. To this pernicious jealousy was added the ill-will of the large against the smaller Steden and the tyrannous arrogance of the towns towards the rural districts. Nor was it till 1438 that Duke Philip restored the rights of the Vige, Le Franc, of Bruges as a fourth member of Flanders. The economic decline of Flanders in the 15th century has been obscured by the glowing descriptions of luxurious life in which the court chroniclers of Philip and Charles abound. The great industry which had filled the famous cloth hall of Ypres steadily declined, till about the time of the death of Mary, a city population which had formerly amounted to something like 100,000 had fallen to about one-twentieth of that total. Ypres, like some other of the Flemish towns, had suffered from special causes, but there was one which fundamentally affected them all. The fabrication of cloth in England had endangered the chief industry of Flanders already at the close of the 14th century, and, profiting alike by the instruction derived from the Flemish immigration, which the troubles of the 15th century had superadded to earlier immigrations in the 12th and 14th, and by the facilities of export offered by the Hanseatic merchants, she gradually drove Flemish cloth from the staple at Calais. The crucial question whether it were better to attract to the Flemish market the sale of this exported English cloth, or to exclude it altogether from competition with the native industry, was settled by a sort of compromise in favour of protection. But the repeated prohibitions of the importation of English cloth, 1436-64, to 64, remained ineffectual and the cloth industry was paralysed in the Flemish cities, though it maintained itself for a considerable time in the open country. Ghent was able to some extent to fall back upon its resources as a staple of corn, and at Bruges, where the banking business of Europe was in the hands of foreign merchants, a busy traffic continued to be carried on. In the struggle pertinaciously maintained by the latter city, from the close of the 13th century onwards, against the transference of her foreign trade to Antwerp, interest in the end prevailed over habit. The English merchant adventurers, who had set up a house at Antwerp early in the 15th century, by the middle of it had transferred themselves thither in a body. While the great transmarine trade was thus drawn away from Flanders, proper to Brabant, and the depopulation of the former, 
which assumed alarming proportions under Charles the Bold, had begun already in the last years of his predecessor, the prosperity of the northern Netherlands continued to increase. Navigation, with the great fishing and other industries, flourished, and little troubled by the remote wars of Charles the Bold, the Hollanders and their neighbours took consolation for his exactions in the cheapness of comforts which they came to reckon among the necessaries of life. In the struggles of the dukes with the communes, the nobles ranged themselves readily on the side of the former down to the close of Philip's reign, notably in Flanders, where Courtrai had never been forgotten. Only very gradually under him, though more abruptly under his successor, the modern notion of the sovereign throned in majestic isolation superseded the feudal conception of the prince among his peers. To a large extent the change was doubtless due to the influence of the most splendid of contemporary western courts. The pictures of its magnificence and luxury drawn by Jacques Duclerc and the elaborate episodes of feast and tournament with which Olivier de la Marche loves to intersperse his narrative bear out the assertion of Comines that in the prodigality of enticements it surpassed any other court known to his experience. In the court guide composed by Olivier during the siege of Neuse, where Charles displayed in the midst of war the stately ceremonial in which his pride delighted, he details the official system and the elaborate etiquette which became the model of many generations. But the completeness of the external machinery furnished no safeguard against the venality and corruption inseparable from despotic rule, or against a dissoluteness of manners usually fostered by formal restraint. The lasciviousness that pervaded the court of Charles the Seventh of France and made that of Edward the Fourth a seminary of pleasant vice readily found its way into the surroundings of Philip the Good, who had a large family of bastards and mistresses by the score. The extravagant delights in which the nobles might share when not engaged in warlike service impoverished many and ruined some, and Charles the Bold's relations with his nobility were strained to the utmost by the military burdens which he imposed on them. Numerous defections followed and suspicions of treason on the unfortunate field of Morat. Only a handful of his nobles fought by his side at Nancy and hardly any held out by his daughter in her hour of distress. Of the relations between the dukes and the clergy, it must suffice to say that they were largely determined by considerations of interest and drawn closer by the unpopularity of both prince and priesthood in the towns. Duke Philip contrived to place his illegitimate brother John in the Sea of Cambrai, while two of his own bastards held the great ecclesiastical principality of Liège. Notwithstanding the church's acquisition of landed property, which here, as elsewhere, legislation sought to stay, the secular arm occasionally appealed to the spiritual for its aid against civic recalcitrance, and now and then supported the clergy when at issue with the towns. Yet such was the perversity of Charles the Bold, which left no section of his subjects to lament his downfall, that he, who at the beginning of his reign had protected the churches of Liège from sharing in the general doom of the city, was at its close 
generally hated by the Netherlands clergy, for having overtaxed them as he had their flocks. The principles and policy of the Burgundian dynasty found their most skilful agents in the highly trained lawyers who, after studying in France, at Louvain, or in the university founded by Philip in Franche-Comte, held high judicial office in the Netherlands. The ground had been in some measure prepared for them, at all events in Flanders, though it was precisely here that the judicial innovations of this period met with the most stubborn resistance. The so-called audiences of the Count, based to some extent on the ancient usage of conveying quiet truths to him, led the way to the establishment of the Count's Council, which in 1385 Philip the Bold transformed into the Chamber of the Duke's Council in Flanders, subdividing it into a judicial and a financial chamber. The latter remained at Lille, whence Philip the Good extended its operations to Namur, Hainault, and the towns on the Somme, while the two financial chambers of Holland and Zeeland, and of Brabant, were united by him at Brussels in 1463. The judicial chamber, on the other hand, which came to be generally known as the Council of Flanders, was, after many shiftings of place, finally brought back to Ghent in 1452. The Council of the Counts of Holland and that of the Dukes of Brabant, having been alike reformed on the acknowledgement of Philip's sovereignty. In each case, the substance of the reform lay in the introduction, by the side of the great lords and officials previously composing the council, of trained lawyers devoted to the maintenance of the ducal authority and inclined to stimulate its self-consciousness. In order, however, to make this authority really supreme, and to avoid the possibility of any appeal to the Parliament of Paris, Philip, in 1446, without putting an end to the Privy Council, which ordinarily attended him, established a Grand Council, attached to his own person, and entrusted with supreme judicial as well as political and financial functions. The centralising process was carried to its final stage by Charles the Bold's settlement of 1473, which maintained the Grand Council as a Council of State for the whole of his dominions, but transferred its financial functions to a chamber finally fixed at Malines, absorbing into this the Brussels Chamber of Accounts. Charles also established a central judicial court at Malines, which he sought to surround with all possible external dignity, frequently presiding in person at his sittings. But it remained unpopular, by reason of its slow Roman procedure and the use of the French language to which it adhered, nor did it survive his fall. As a matter of course, both Philip and Charles had from time to time to summon the states of the several lands, for there was no other way of obtaining the extraordinary aids, Baden, required more especially for their wars. In the meetings of these states, the attendance of the nobles gradually slackened, and, notably in Holland, only the larger towns were regularly represented. For the rest, no town or state was bound except by its own vote. It was again no innovation when, in 1428, Philip caused his settlement with Jacqueline 
to be confirmed by a meeting of representatives of all the lands whose allegiance she had formerly claimed. And it was only a step further when, after two previous meetings in 1463-4, he in 1465 formally called upon all the states of the Low Countries assembled at Brussels to recognise his son as his successor and lieutenant-general, and at the same time obtained from them a supply enabling him to carry on effective war against Louis XI. Charles the Bold thrice assembled these states-general, but they do not appear to have regularly comprised representatives of the whole of his Netherlands' dominions. Thus this all-important institution never passed beyond an initial stage under either of the last two Burgundian dukes, though Philip had faithful servants who advised him to trust those trusted by his subjects. Indeed, an outline of the constitutional system to which the occasional convocation of the States-General pointed has actually been preserved, dating from an earlier period of his reign. After Philip had, like his father before him, found the communal militia of the Flemish towns untrustworthy in foreign war, he had for his military needs fallen back on the feudal services upon which the first two Burgundian dukes had placed a precarious dependence. But the forces which he employed for the overthrow of the liberties of Kent, and which his heir led forth against Louis XI on behalf of the League of the Common Good, already comprised a considerable element of mercenary soldiers, Picards and English in particular. The Bande d'Ordinance of Charles the Bold, a modified imitation of the new French model, were partly recruited among the nobility, partly made up of Italian heavy infantry and the indispensable English archers, and a select bodyguard was formed on a similar basis. In 1471, he raised a permanent force of 10,000 men. The towns had to equip contingents at their own expense, but under officers named by the Duke. He improved his artillery and paid attention to the fighting qualities of his navy. Though Charles was both an unskilful and an unfortunate commander, he was the creator of the standing army which proved so formidable under the rule of his descendants. Much of his military expenditure was unavoidable, since the superiority of regular troops over feudal levies was already proved, and he deserves credit for his consistent maintenance of discipline, more especially as it only increased his unpopularity. It has frequently been assumed that the progress of art and literature in the Netherlands must have benefited by the patronage of an open-handed dynasty and a sumptuous court. But, although the Renaissance owed not a little to the goodwill of Philip the Good and his family, they either used its culture as a political expedient or, in Voltaire's phrase, treated it as a passe-temps. The triumphs of a late and rich variety of the Gothic style attested by so many municipal and ecclesiastical edifices of the 15th century are due to the towns, although in so many instances their decadence had already set in. The case was different with the sister art, which in Flanders was emancipated from Byzantine models, introduced by the Crusades, by the great painters to whom the miniaturists 
had formed a characteristic transition. When Hubert van Eyck died in 1420, he bequeathed the completion of the masterpiece of the School of Bruges to his younger brother John. Within fourteen further years, the latter, who was soon made a member of Duke Philip's household, perfected a form of art that clothed its simple ideals of, of faith and devotion in the golden splendour of the age of its origin. Its latest great master, Memling, carried far beyond the borders of his native land the purest and profoundest pictorial expression of the mystic depth of religious sentiment. Leaving aside other forms of art, among which something might be said of the attention paid by both Flemings and Walloons to that of music, we find that already under the house of Dampierre, the French literature patronised by the Counts, and the Flemish that was dear to the people, had gone far asunder. In the latter part of the 14th century, French historic prose, as it were, annexed the Netherlands as part of its proper domain. Boissard, the chief prophet of the last phase of chivalry, radiating from the court of the Burgundian dukes, and the exemplar of a whole line of chroniclers devoted to their dynasty, was himself a native of Hainault, and spent the last quarter of a century of his life in retirement in Flanders. After him, it became indispensable that every important court or great noble household should possess its indiciare, or historiographer, and the House of Burgundy fostered a series of such literary officials who placed on record every step in its advance, inflated its pride, and enhanced its fame. The list includes, besides Angurand de Monstrelet, on the whole a fairly candid writer, Jacques Lefebvre de Saint-Rémy, who in the main borrowed or abridged from him, the graphic Jacques Duclerc, Georges Castellin, by his literary gifts as well as by his masculine outspokenness, the most notable of Foissin's successors, and Jean Molinet, whose turgid artificiality and euphustic affectations render him a fit narrator of the decay and downfall of Burgundian greatness. All these, except Monstrelet, were officials of the ducal house, which was abandoned by Comines, the one narrator of the great struggle who writes in the spirit of practical statementship. Edmund of Dinter, who came into the service of Philip the Good from that of the Dukes of Brabant, furnished a long pragmatic history of the Jacqueline Troubles and the complicated course of events in Gelderland. Against the influences of a French-speaking court and its literary mouthpieces, the native language and literature had to rely upon a power of resistance strengthened by movements springing from the heart of the people. Thus, though the so-called chambers of rhetoric, whose members went by the name of Rederikers, derived their title from France, the institution itself was clearly a continuation or renewal of the old confraternities or guilds devoted to the performance of religious plays, which flourished in various parts of the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. The Rederikers, whose activity cannot safely be asserted to have begun much before the 15th century, abandoned the domain of ecclesiastical tradition, thereby rendering collision with the church inevitable sooner or later, and, as at the same time the critical spirit asserted itself, 
and the influence of the Renaissance enlarged the choice of materials, in their dramatic allegories or moralities, Spelen van Zine, paid increasing attention to the treatment of their subjects and the form of their plays. Connecting their performances with the festivals that formed so material a part of the popular life of the Netherlands, they at the same time more and more acquired the character of literary associations, whose activity extended to a wide variety of forms of composition. The most ancient of the Belgian chambers, the Alpha et Omega of Ypres, seems to date from a time rather before the beginning of the 15th century. The famous In Lief de Bleuglend of Amsterdam was not instituted till 1517. Their number ultimately grew to an extraordinary extent, more especially in the southern Netherlands, and the elaborate arrangements for establishing an organic union among them culminated in the meeting of deputies of all the chambers at Malines, in 1493, on the summons of Philip the Fair, and the setting up, in 1503, of a supreme chamber at Ghent. But this late effort of a centralising policy was vehemently opposed, and its practical result was small. The Reformation found the chambers instinctively sensitive to impulses moving the heart of the people, with what consequences is well known. The popular religious movements noticeable in the Netherlands up to the close of the 14th century had on the whole remained ominously out of touch with the organisation of the church. On the other hand, the Beguines and Beghards and Lollards had little or nothing to say against the doctrines of the Church of Rome, and neither the Wycliveites nor afterwards the followers of Hus seem to have attempted any propaganda in the Low Countries. The beginnings there of mystical speculation, of which the revered Johannes Roosbroek, born near Brussels in 1283, can in his age hardly have been a solitary representative, may possibly be traceable to the teachings of the master Eckhart at Cologne. To Roosbroek's teachings, both Tauler and Gerard Groot were listeners. They became a profound source of personal inspiration to many generations nor has their echo died out to this day. To Gert, Gerard, Groot, and his friend Florentius Radvenzun, unlike him, an ecclesiastic by profession, was due the establishment of the Fraternus at his native town of Deventer, which became the model of a series of similar foundations, intended as the homes of the pious followers of God resolved to lead a common life of prayer and labour, unencumbered by any hierarchical organisation and free from any system of irrevocable vows. A happy accident suggested that some of the young members of the Deventer settlement should contribute towards its support by clubbing together their earnings as copyists of manuscripts of the scriptures and the church fathers, to which work they had as pupils of the Latin school in the town been encouraged by Grutte. Hereby, he had from the very outset of his endeavours blended the pursuit of learning and the furtherance of education with a life of piety and devotion. While extending and consolidating the system of the Fraterhusen, Florentius also carried out a cherished earlier design of his friend by the foundation at Vindezem de Zwolle of a convent of canons regular. The half-century of the reigns of Philip and Charles 
witnessed a continuous extension in almost every part of the Netherlands, as well as in many districts of northern Germany, both of the houses of the brethren of the common life and of the convents called the Windesem congregations. The church had come to recognize the agency of the brethren as useful and praiseworthy. Among those who extolled their labors was the Minorite Johannes Brugman, the greatest popular preacher of his age in the Netherlands, and they were favored by Duke Philip's brother, Bishop David of Utrecht. The value of the brethren's labors in the transcription of manuscripts has not been overestimated, but these labors belonged to a period that was passing away and were only slightly supplemented by use of the new invention of the printing press. On the other hand, the work of education had always formed a chief purpose and essential part of the existence of the fraternity. The very large numbers of scholars attending its schools signally contributed throughout the Netherlands to lay the foundations of an enduring literary culture, and the fact that the teaching and training of these scholars was everywhere impregnated with the spirit of religious devotion determined the significance, to the most illustrious as well as to the humblest of them all, of the advance of the new learning. They met it less in the spirit of an enthusiastic humanism than in that of a steady demand for serviceable law, such as already gives so much substance to the writings of Cardinal Cusanus, a pupil of Deventer in its earlier days. But a new educational epoch began with Alexander Hagius, who in 1474 was appointed head of the school at Deventer, and died near the close of the century, leaving behind him nothing but his clothes and his books, and a name which may fairly be called that of one of the great schoolmasters of the world. The list of the scholars trained at Deventer by him, or in his time, and that of his Paris fellow-student Badius Asensius, Bad of Esch, includes, besides its chief and incomparable glory, the name of Erasmus, those of Conrad Mutianus, the pride of Erfurt in her brightest days, and Hermann von dem Busch, whom Strauss calls the missionary of humanism. Johannes Stintius, Stintheim, who taught with Hegius at Deventer and was himself a member of the Brotherhood, rendered a signal service to education in the Netherlands and in Germany by the successful revision of the Latin grammar, which had held its own for centuries. The schools of the Brethren were not seminaries of that narrower humanism, which made the study of the classical tongues the sole method and all but the supreme object of education. They encouraged the reading of the Bible and the use of the service books in the vulgar tongue, cherished the careful use and even the study of the vernacular, and thus brought about the beginning of a new educational movement which on the Upper Rhine was to lead to results such as it could hardly expect to command on the Lower. Many links connect the labours of the Brethren and the great movement which in the 15th century strove to quicken the religious life of the German people by bringing learning and education and literature and art into living harmony with it. Such a link may be found in the life of Rudolf Agricola, who died in 1485 and, although apparently not a pupil of the Brethren, was a native of the neighbourhood of Groningen, 
where one of their seminaries was placed. The last years of his life were spent at Heidelberg and Worms. He was a man of three tongues, but it was in theological rather than in philological study that he found the crown of his labours. Of a very different character were the relations, in the Netherlands, between the Renaissance and university studies. The complete separation of academical from municipal government at Louvain and the special attention devoted there to legal studies intended to prepare for the service of the central government went some way towards estranging that university from popular and provincial interests. But the part which she was long to play in the history of the intellectual culture of the country was determined by the identification of her interests with those of church and clergy. The most illustrious of the earlier students and teachers of Louvain, Pope Adrian VI, in a sense typifies both her influence and that of the Brethren's school in which he had been previously trained. In matters concerning the church, he thought with vigour and honesty, but for poetry he had scant sympathy to spare. Especially in consequence of the influence exercised by the monastic orders, Louvain's academical character was even more conservative than that of Cologne. For the rest, the relations between church and people in the 15th century were in the Netherlands affected by the general causes in operation throughout Western Europe. The deep religious feeling of the people remained proof against the excesses alike and the shortcomings of the clergy, against a corruption which led even Philip the Good to approve of the attempt to divert the administration of charity into lay hands and a license of life on the part of both seculars and regulars, which defied repeated attempts at reform. Few protests against the doctrines and usages of the church are noticeable in the course of the 15th century. A more lasting influence was, however, being quietly exercised by a school of religious thinkers, to which in the latter half of the century two notable Netherlanders belonged. The theology of John Pooper of Goch in the Duchy of Cleves, who is believed to have been educated in one of the Brethren's schools, and who for nearly a quarter of a century presided over a priory of Austin canonesses founded by him at Malines in 1451, rejected the pretensions of mere outward piety and dead formalism. There is no proof that his writings, which were read by few, were known to Luther, but they must have come under the notice of Erasmus. The step to the assertion of the universal priesthood of Christian believers was taken by a bolder thinker, John Vessel Gersevert, who, born at Groningen about the year 1420, was educated in the school of the Brotherhood at Zwolle, but afterwards studied in most of the chief universities of Europe. He was honoured by both Luther and Melanchthon, but he never took orders, and his academic distinction is his chief title to fame, Magister Contradictionium. He enjoyed the patronage of Bishop David of Utrecht, but his favourite residence seems to have been the Frisian convert of Advert, to which a species of high school was attached. Lover of truth as he was, and in one respect at least, viz. as to the doctrine of the Eucharist, even further advanced than Luther, he disliked any appeal to the passions of the people, 
and had as little thought as Bishop David himself of an open rupture with the church. End of section 43